Hello, I'm Ray Reich, CEO of RevOps Squared and the host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B SaaS industry thought leaders, executives, and people just like you to discuss how they use metrics, key performance indicators, and benchmarks to enable better data-driven metrics-informed decisions that accelerate revenue performance and increase enterprise value. If you'd like to gain insights into how your metrics measure up to industry benchmarks, you can learn more at RevOpsSquared.com. Now, on to today's show. Welcome to today's edition of the Metrics and Measure Up podcast. We're fortunate to have Amy Volus join us, who's a real thought leader on LinkedIn regarding all things sales-related and specifically sales recruiting. Amy, thank you so much for joining me today. Ray, thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk about all this, so appreciate the invite. Before we jump into the discussion itself, do you mind just taking a minute and introducing yourself, your background, and what you're currently doing? Sure. So I'm the founder and CEO of a company called Avenue Talent Partners. That is a search firm to help varying stages of startups hire experienced enterprise sellers, sales leaders, and executive sales leaders. So we're quite specific about the lane that we swim in. It comes from my background of being in sales, specifically enterprise sales, for 20 plus years. I'm really proud to say that I've sold over $100 million of revenue and counting. And through that, have learned a ton of lessons. I've been both a seller and a leader. I've sold products and services. I've worked for big companies. I've worked for startups. And all of that kind of culminates to this point of what I do and why I do it and what my background is. So that's me. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And I know that with your following on LinkedIn and some of the positive comments I see, we are fortunate to have you today. So let's start today's podcast with some of the benchmarks that we've conducted in the first half of 20 for the B2B SaaS industry. These are all part of the RevOps Square KPI benchmarking index. Number one, ARR growth is down over 50% versus the first half 20 plan. And in fact, new ARR is down almost 70% against the plan in the first half. If you look at the efficiency of getting new ARR measured by the CAC ratio, the CAC ratio has actually increased by about 25% in the first half of 20 versus FY19. What that means is for every dollar of new ARR that's being generated in the B2B SaaS industry, it's costing now about a dollar and 60 cents of sales and marketing cost. So with that as the backdrop, based upon your role, both as a practitioner and as a recruiter for multiple B2B SaaS companies, what are the major impacts you've seen to B2B sales in the last six months, both from a business reality perspective, but also from a sales professional psyche perspective? So I think, and I promise I'm not trying to shamelessly plug this, but I'm really dialed into, I think I'm going to start Psyche first. For the last almost 30 weeks, I am co-hosting something called Thursday Night Sales with Scott Lease, and it is an opportunity every week where we spend hours in an open Q&A. It is not recorded, and it's really an ask us anything of what's top of mind, and there are varying stages of people in their sales career. So you have people coming straight out of school, and you have people that have been 
been in the trenches for years and years, everything in between. We have sales leaders, we have marketers, we have founders. And so it's a really fascinating thing because the common theme here I think is how do I adapt? How do I feel like I'm part of my company when everything is sort of up in the air? What is normal? What does that look like? And on the flip side, people coming together to be like, wow, I've checked off those boxes and I've challenged myself and it's fascinating. The common theme here is I think people feel a bit fatigued and I know I feel the same way. I've never worked more than I ever have. And I'm not sure if that's because we're all at home more than we've been, or it's a nice outlet and a coping mechanism, or the table stakes are higher than they've ever been because the market is all over the place, depending on what industry you're in. And if you're a seller that sells to different industries, you've had to adjust to that. So from a psyche perspective, I think that there are really shining bright moments. There are hopeful moments. There are scared moments and there are overwhelming moments, which I feel like this is my third downtime in my career or weird funky time. My very first pandemic. But I think that's also part of sales is it is a roller coaster ride. And I think that there is a mental resilience that you build up when you've been in it for a really long time that's required. This mental resilience is something that I don't think any of us have seen before. So that's a really long answer to saying it's all over the place. Yeah, it's interesting. Similar to you, I went through the kind of dot-com bust in 2000, 2001, and then the financial crisis of 08 and 09. Yep. You know, you build a little bit of muscle memory, but this time it's almost a lot of the people I'm talking to, it's almost like they have PTSD. This has been so dramatic after four to five years of just go-go, and we have a lot more early career professionals in the SaaS industry today than we had 10 years ago. Yeah. And I just feel that we, as people who have seen this, we owe it to them to help them and provide by providing them coping techniques. And quite frankly, sometimes just an arm around the shoulder to say, it's going to get better. Let's make ourselves better today so we can reap the rewards once this is over. Yep. And that's, that's one of the main, I so agree with that and identify with that. That's one of the main reasons why I dedicate hours every week to Thursday night sales is it's not all doom and gloom. It's a tremendous opportunity to learn and grow. It's a tremendous opportunity to level up. If people have been displaced out of work, now is not the time to be binge watching Netflix. It can be a really lovely time to continue to challenge yourself to address the things that you didn't have time to do before of how you want to get better. So many people have been so generous about offering free training, free courses, masterclasses, all of the things. And even if you're a little rusty on things, it's a great time to dust off those skills and, and get them sharp again. So like I said, it doesn't have to be all doom and gloom, but I think it's a real big opportunity for people to course correct potentially and have some serious conversations with self about who am I? What's important to me? Where do I go? How do I make heads or tails out of this? And to your point, that's when I got into sales was in 2001. It's interesting. There are bits and pieces that are familiar from 2001, from 2008. This is very, very different though. And the thing that I think has served me well personally is remembering that I can only control what I can control and holding myself accountable to that and not getting caught up in every other thing swirling around me, which is something that I try to remind people of all the time. So there's that. You know, let's dig into the mindset. Gerhard Gershwander, who's the founder of Selling Power Magazine and also on Sales 3.0. He talks a lot about the peak performance mindset. And even in today's education, educators are talking about the growth mindset versus the fixed mindset. But let's 
focus on today's B2B modern seller. What motivates them to be a B2B sales professional versus the sellers of the past, say 10 or 20 years ago? Do you see different motivators today, Amy? I don't. When it's people that are going to be in the craft for a long time, I really don't. What I am seeing that's a little bit different now is people are like, eh, I'll try it out. I heard you can make a lot of money or eh, anytime you do something, if you're like, eh, that directly correlates to your mindset, which directly correlates to action, which directly correlates to outcome. And so what I have seen when it comes to the mindset and motivators of the modern seller is I am very outspoken and probably quite controversial for money. What happened in SaaS 10, 15 years ago about this predictable, repeatable, scalable revenue model has now turned into a growth at all costs that has now turned into an over-segmented model, which has now turned into a situation that turns many buyers off. And I know you'll appreciate this from a metrics perspective. I don't think that we're always looking at the right metrics. I'm really disheartened by companies that are just starting to realize that retention matters. It's always mattered. Customers always matter. And so for the people through the ages of the time that I got in to present day, I've had countless conversations with people and I'm always fascinated about what makes people tick. And in my business, I actually track this data. And most people would say, well, salespeople are always motivated by money. And while I would argue that that's not the case, yes, that's important. Yes, that's in the top five, but the best sellers and what motivates them, and this is what I'm hearing every single day, three things. And my data points to this. They care about leadership because they know it starts from the top down. And if your sales leadership or your executive leadership or your board or all of the above, and I would argue all of the above, could care less about sales as it's a necessary evil, the best sellers want no part of that because they know that that then cascades into every decision that's made into the culture, into all of the things that matter. So step one is leadership for people. Step two is product market or service market fit because it doesn't matter how good I am as a seller. If it falls short for the market, the market speaks the loudest. So they're really in tune with that. That motivates them. And the third thing is, what is the true opportunity here? Enough with the shiny objects, enough about making me promises that you can't keep what really happens if I do X, what does Y look like? And if I want to continue to grow and maybe not, you know, the traditional up the ladder, but in other places, how does that happen? The fourth thing is money because what the best sellers that are doing the most realize is that if those core things are in place, the money always follows. And so that's what I see. That's what I believe. That's where I've come from. That's what served me well. And it's, those are the people that tend to, really stand out in organizations. Those are the people that take their career seriously. Those are the people that care deeply about the customer journey by and large. And I know I'm generalizing here. Not everybody, there's always an exception, but yeah, that's what I see. It's interesting, Amy. I'm an engineering by schooling and I transitioned into sales about a year into my career. And initially I thought it was for the financial rewards. Mm -hmm. Within about 12 months, I realized there's two things that really kind of got me going. Number one was I was actually helping the buyers make an informed decision of if my solution, number one, fit their needs, and number two, could impact their business. So I became a very value-based ROI-centric seller, but I also was just as willing to tell my buyers, based upon what you're looking for and what your return on investment criteria are, we may not be the best solution. And I think that has served me and many sellers well. When they think about it more, they're serving their customer, both from a decision-making process, but then after the sale, 
that the projected ROI in value is translated into the implementation and adoption of the solution. And I was talking to Sahil Mansuri from Ravana on a podcast last week, and he said, you know, I believe that the job of sales today is to convert a company's curiosity and awareness of our solution into a customer and ensure the adoption. So I was shocked that he's talking about a community of 70,000 B2B salespeople that he thinks their motivation and responsibility is almost exactly what I thought 25 years ago. I'll say this, anytime I've ever just gone for the money didn't work out so well. And I hear that every single day when people are like, yeah, you know, they told me I could make this and I got really excited and then I realized I couldn't. And so I think it goes back to not taking a backseat approach to whatever it is that you do, sales included. Because this is, when I think about value-based selling, when I think about any which way that somebody could describe that they sell, this is what I do believe. Whether it's what Sahil just said or somebody else, this is what I know to be true given what I've done and what I see and in the problems that I think about solving. Buyers buy for three reasons. And we could say that we're creating value. We could say that it's emotion. We could say that they're making a decision. Ultimately, they're spending money. And so they're buying something. The best sellers seek to understand Understand, not seek to talk about objections or seek to respond. They want to understand because they want to have an open conversation. And you spoke my love language, Ray. The best trait that I mastered and I learned and I do is the power of no, because I understand what I do best and what I don't do best. And if there's not alignment, to be a normal, responsible human being with integrity to be able to discuss that and to say thank you, but no thank you. And you never know where the paths cross again. But here's what I do know. Buyers do three things or, or they respond to three things. You can truly help me solve a problem. You can truly help me get better or you can truly help me reach a goal. And I think so many times people get so bent or caught up on problems, 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 fill up the basket of problems, find the problems. Well, yes, you need to. Some of the best opportunities from helping them reach a goal and that goal might have nothing to do with a problem. And so I think, you know, it's our responsibility. If you're going to be in sales and stick around and have success, it's not about, Larry Levine says this and I love it. It's not about the commission breath and calculating out what you get. It's when you flip the script and you realize it's more about them and less about you. That's when the commissions flow through. Reverse engineering that mindset a little bit. Maybe you're speaking my language, but let me now bring up another topic that you talk about making the customer first and you're a servant to the customer. Yeah. There's a lot of influencers um, on LinkedIn, other social mediums today saying that, you know, B2B salesperson, you got to look out for number one, right? Don't think about company loyalty. Think about what's best for you. And that means you need to have a side hustle. You need to have a side hustle to make sure that if your current job doesn't work out, you're still going to be okay. Amy, what do you think about this advice to say, hey, B2B salespeople, you need to have a side hustle beyond your job as an account executive at this company. Well, I think with any advice, you got to consider the source. <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> So I'll say that first and foremost, I'll say that just because advice is out there, just because it's something that might have a million followers doesn't mean that it's good for me. And I think when people think about side hustles, what they don't realize just because I want to be like somebody else, because they seem to be getting it right, or they seem to be perfect from the outside looking in, you don't know what really happens behind the scenes. And so I said this a lot to people recently, if your main hustle is the thing that feeds you, that pays your bills, and you go down the path of 
side hustling because you think that that's what you should do because some influencer told you that's what you should do. I think you owe it to yourself and you owe it to your company to have a little gut check because what most people I find don't do is they don't look at the fine print of the employment agreement that they're a part of. And there might be some things in that five print that say you can't have a side hustle. So if you don't pay attention to that and you go and you side hustle and you lose your job. And by the way, I hear about that. And I've been hearing more and more about that. And that's deeply troubling to me for a lot of different reasons. So there's that, right? Like first and foremost, like let's figure out where we're coming from. For those that are thinking about this and they're starting new jobs, cut it out and focus on your new job, right? Like that doesn't mean that you can't have a passion project. That doesn't mean that you can't have other interests. But if you haven't done the work to prove yourself, to realize success, to get to the outcomes that you need to get to, and you're distracted by a side hustle, maybe you want to rethink a career in sales. You know, Amy, we are so aligned. I'm an ex-athlete. And one of the things I found out about B2B sales, much like being an athlete, is preparation and practice precedes performance. And in sales, I've never seen it to be a 40 hour a week job. If you're spending time after hours, preparing for your next day, practicing your skills, maybe that's doing some role plays or practicing the presentation, or maybe I'm trying to do different ROI calculations. I don't understand that industry well enough. You're not going to be a top 10 or 20% um, performer. So I'm not even sure how there's enough time to be a top performer while you're doing a side hustle of any meaning. Yeah, if you fail to play and you plan to fail, right? Like I believe in that Benjamin Franklin quote. Here's the thing, especially those that are just getting into this, that are taking this advice or getting seduced by it. Like I can make all this extra income. Let's go back to the basics here. If everybody could do a side hustle, if everybody could be an entrepreneur, if everybody could be a founder, everybody would be. You know why they're not? It's effing hard, right? Like, so time management, and I absolutely agree with you, Ray. Absolutely. It's not a nine to five job. I was just dealing with a client last night at 8.35 p.m. And leading up to that, I was still working. That doesn't mean that everybody needs to work like me. And I'm not certainly suggesting that people need to be in a sweatshop. That is not this. But I do come from the school of thought of what you put into something is directly correlated to what you will see back from that. And so- if, and it doesn't even mean somebody just starting out in their career, if you have major responsibility and we're in COVID and your company needs you now more than ever, and you think it's a good idea to go out and be a sales consultant with six other companies, first of all, are you being honest with the six other companies? What is your true capacity and how are you really able to help them? And that's money that they're spending with you. That's a responsibility. I would argue, can you really do that well while you're still being a CRO with the company that you're with? I don't know about that. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't help another company or that you can't figure out how to do that in more of a scalable fashion from instead of one-to-one, one-to-many, perhaps. But I can tell you, there is this thing that's happening and it is troubling to me where there's like this us versus them mentality of like salespeople versus the world and every founder or every executive is out to get me. The answer to that is no, stop it. There are plenty of wonderful, amazing opportunities and companies that do get it, that do have the right foundation. And those are the ones that tend to have a zero tolerance policy for this nonsense. It doesn't mean that side hustling is nonsense. It means that you have got to have a good measuring stick for yourself. You have to be self-aware. What realistically can you do and not do? Because if you do anything halfway, it's going to be directly correlated to the outcome. And if you're not giving anything your best and everything just gets a little bit of this, a little bit of that, I'd argue that's probably not good enough. Now, there are always exceptions to the rule. That's great. Here, true story. And I got a lot of flack from this this week. I put up a 
LinkedIn posting. It's not one of my clients. It's not the work that I do. Somebody had accepted the job and they kept shopping offers and the person found out and they pulled the offer. And all of these people came down my street of, there are all these horrible companies that pull offers and that's great. Two wrongs don't make a right. And there is something about integrity. There is something about your word is your bond. There is something about open communication. And if you are not comfortable having an open dialogue with your leadership team about some of the things that you want to be doing and how that's going to affect perhaps your availability, but you'll make it up over here. I just don't see that working out very well because I hear the real stories outside of LinkedIn every single day behind the scenes of people that are in trouble, people that are on performance improvement plans, people that are losing side hustle clients and people that are losing their jobs. You know, Amy, people talk about building your brand, developing your brand online. And I see a lot of people spending a lot of time by providing advice, whether it's high quality advice or not on LinkedIn, on Twitter, et cetera. But a sales professional's brand is much more than their social media presence. It's their integrity, their performance, their recommendations from people they've worked for, worked with, and from their customers. So what do you think about this other piece of advice going on is you've got to build your personal brand on social media and almost to at the expense of building your company's brand and your company's value proposition. I think those things can intermingle, right? But I think it ties back to be a responsible ambassador of the organization and go back to the team and say, hey, I really want to do this. This is really important to me because I do think your network is your net worth. I do believe in that saying, but I think it's always the application of how. And I, I will say from a marketing perspective, people don't really necessarily respond to, we here at Avenue Talent Partners just placed this CRO. Nobody cares about that. What people do care is why am I doing it? What are the outcomes? Do I have the background to back it up? But you have to understand if somebody wants to emulate what I'm doing, I work for myself. I can fire myself. My clients can fire me, but I don't have the same table stakes. So think if you're working for someone else, I think it's a responsible, good citizen, good integrity thing to do of having a discussion to be like, what are the limits here? What are the boundaries? Are there certain things that I'm not even thinking about that you don't want me to talk about because it alienates our partners or or it alienates our customers. Or maybe we have parts of our business that are in different countries and culturally how we do social media is maybe different than how they do that. Is there anything that I need to think about bigger than me? And that's the thing here. We're in such a what's in it for me kind of moment. That's not how long-standing careers and sales are made. Because if it's just what's in it for me, you're going to probably be the person that sprays and prays and could care less about what your customers are doing. You're going to be the person that's like, I don't care about my employer and, and I don't care about taking this job. I'm going to keep shopping offers. That might serve you well in the short term. Talk to me in 20 years. And so that's the thing. You can do it. It can be great. I think it's really powerful. I think it's about understanding the boundaries and building a personal brand on social. My brand on social is exactly who I am if you were bumping into me at the the Pilates studio. It's exactly who I am if you're my husband. It's exactly who I am at the grocery store. It's exactly who I am when this podcast turns off. What you see is what you get. And, and that is the thing here of if I'm trying to project something that is a copycat is the first term that kind of pops into my mind because I saw that Ray, you did it and you got major engagement off of that. So I want to be the same way because I want to be that person. I want to get LinkedIn famous. At some point, people are going to see the real you and it's going to get you into hot water. 
matter, right? It's kind of like when you date somebody, if I'm being a different version of myself and I'm in a serious committed relationship and fast forward six months and the real me comes out and that's not what my partner signed up for, I don't know if that relationship's going to work. This is no different. And so personal branding doesn't mean you have to go to LinkedIn and post every single day, all day long. At some point, your employer is going to be like, what are you doing? And if you are not at the place where you have the outcome and the end result, get off social and do your job. Yeah, I am. I am totally aligned with you. In fact, I've seen some people who have developed great followings on LinkedIn and were thought leaders in a particular discipline. And then six months later, they're like, well, I lost my job. I got fired because, and it's like, well, yeah, you got fired because you were talking about how to be a great VP of X versus actually being a great VP of X for your team and your company. Correct. Well, the funniest thing, not funny, it, it actually saddens me and it troubles me. And the reason why I'm having such a strong voice about this on your podcast is I want people to think about this. And there are no absolutes. It's about what works well for you. And I'm a big believer. If you have to second guess something of whether something's appropriate or not, you already have your answer, probably not appropriate. But what people don't realize is I can't tell you how many times, look at the business that I am in. If I had a big mouth, I'd be out of business. I hear a lot of things. And so many of the big influencers are some of the poorest performers on their team. They're on performance improvement plans. They can't hold a job. Remember what I said when we first got into this, you got to consider the source. Just because I've figured out how to write copy that's magnetic and engaging and provocative does not mean that I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, that's a really good insight. One of the things you mentioned was being your authentic self. And I look at your social media following and what you've done, but you're almost always promoting concepts that directly relate to your business, which is helping individuals and companies meet each other in a great sales relationship. So tell me a little bit about the cost of a bad hire. And think about this from both sides, Amy. One is I saw your most recent blog that the cost of a bad hire for the company, things like the cost of the hire itself, lost productivity, et cetera. But then also share your ideas about the cost of a bad hire from the employee's perspective. Did they join the wrong company? Did it not align with their own personality or their own ambitions? So talk about that from both sides. Yeah. So let's start with the employer side. And I think, you know, people just look at it like, oh, well, it's like the salary that I paid or the money that I paid. And it's like, no, no, for anybody that hasn't read top grading, I've read it many, many times. They estimate the cost of a bad hire to be anywhere between five to 27 times the amount of a person's salary. So let's go from the top. Let's say it's a VP of sales. That's got a 275 base, 27 times 275. That's just base. So let's break it down. million. Yeah. And I try to tell people, so like my mission in life is to help people avoid the mishire, right? For both sides of the coin, not just my employers that I represent and my clients that pay my bills, but the folks that are considering making a move, the grass isn't always greener on the other side. Stop chasing the shiny objects. Use a scorecard slow a bit down and be thoughtful. And if your questions aren't being answered as someone considering a new role, taking that leap of faith could be the riskiest move you make in your career that could set you back years. So let's break down some of the costs though. So time is money, as they say, and time is one of those priceless currencies that you can't get back once you spend it. So when you think about not just the time spent making the hire, now it's going to be the time spent to find the next hire and all the time spent to try to enable the hire that the hire 
was in the role, the collateral damage, perhaps, if they went out in a blaze of glory that they left behind, those costs. You've got ramp time onboarding. You've got comp earned. You've got benefits, insurance, other perks. And by the way, if I'm talking to my leader friends and you've negotiated yourself a great deal, you might have to, as an employer, pay the person on the way out, which then leads me to equity. Equity costs something. Lots of startups are like, we'll just give a bunch of equity and they don't think about this. And now you're married to this person that's exercising their options and you've spent way more than you need to. Then if you're working with somebody like me, if you've paid a bunch of recruiter fees and future recruiter fees, you've got the equipment costs. People are working from home. Uh, if you've set them up with the way that their office is set up and those expenses, if you've got how it affects your buyer journey, right? Like salespeople are churning nearly 3X more than any other discipline. That's crazy. So let's say you're in heavy duty enterprise sales, which is the world that I came from, which is the like my very first business love. If your sales journey or your buyer journey is let's say 12 plus months, and you're churning two people. Two people have touched that Fortune 50 blue chip brand. How do you think your buyer feels? How much business have you lost? What's at stake? What's churning? By the way, if you're churning a sales leader and they've brought a bunch of people over with them and it doesn't work out, and then all those people go because they're loyal, not only are you losing the leadership cost, you now have other turnover costs. It's like exponential. Let alone then, let's say something gnarly happens and you have a legal situation on your hands. Now you got legal fees. Oh, and by the way, if you don't have the right people in the right roles doing the right work, there's a cost associated with that when it comes to downtime. So all of that is stuff that should not be taken lightly. Those are exorbitant costs, both from the quantified qualified bottom line dollars to the things that are not so tangible that you may not necessarily see in terms of your buyers, in terms of your team. These are things that I want people to consider. That's on one side. On the flip side of that, I'm the person. Let's say I got recruited out. I got caught up in the shiny objects. It was a bait and switch job. We all know that this happens and that breaks my heart. And it's one of the reasons why I vet my clients just as much as I vet anybody I bring their way. I take this really seriously. So let's say that didn't happen. Let's say it's a bad deal. You leave a company that's serving you really well. You left a bunch of money on the table that you earned to take this leap of faith. And if we're talking about enterprise sales, it takes you a good 12 months to build up a repeatable, scalable, measurable pipeline of real legit stuff. So let's say you walk away from that and you're in that build. Not only did you step away from the money that you had earned, not only did you step away from a role that was serving you well, where you had a pipeline for the short, near, and long term, you now took the risk. And for however long you'd been in the role, you weren't earning potentially any money, especially if it didn't work out. You're probably not earning any money doing that, let alone then if it was a really bad move. And let's say you've made a few really bad moves. Job hopping is a thing. You might be able to get another job, but the cherry rolls, my clients pay close, close attention to that. And I know it's an unpopular opinion, but it's a true story. So what does that mean? And depending on how you exited, right? We're living out loud in this digital age. The walls that any of us could hide behind, those have crumbled and they're crumbling and they're not there and they're not going to be there. So if you are burning down your personal brand behind the scenes, I don't care what it looks like on LinkedIn, people talk. These are the things, these are the costs. And so I find that there's this thing happening with a lack of intentionality. And it's like, let's go fast. Let's go at any cost and we'll figure it out along the way. And we'll figure it out as we go. 
for both employers as well as people that are in their own careers. Stop, slow down. It's why I preach a scorecard. We start telling ourselves stories. It is like dating. You get seduced. There is chemistry. And then, oh, by the way, I forgot to ask these three really critical things. And I'm taking a leap of faith. And those three really critical things are totally broken. And you can't be successful. And it is bad. And you are out. Not good. Amy, totally agree. Two things I'd like to add to what you just shared with us. When you look at those short-term kind of job hoppers on your LinkedIn profile, you know, one short-term role as a BB sales professional, you can explain that. There often is a good reason. If you have two of those in a row, it's much harder to explain and it's much harder to get a job in an A company. Three of those on your LinkedIn profile, you might as well start saying hello to those B and C companies for the rest of your career because it's very hard to get those A plus companies. Would you agree with that? Not always the number, but when it becomes a theme. Because here's the thing, I deal in the startup ecosystem and there are people that love early stage seed round companies and they get really caught up in the mission and there is really no business, right? Like we know what the stats are of how many startups actually succeed. If that's happening, okay. I want to know what the lessons are learned though. And I look for the blame game. If it's everybody else's problem and I'm the next thing since sliced bread, yeah, that's going to start raising up some flags. And so I do agree with you when it is the common denominator and there is really horrible, icky advice on LinkedIn about, and it usually comes from the job hopper themselves. <laughs> That's like, you know, it's a great way to figure out what you want to be doing at the expense of what, right? And the number one thing that comes up behind the scenes with people that make hiring decisions, what is your decision-making process? If you can't seem to get it right, and this is your fifth time at this rodeo, and you can't hold down a job for nine months, and we're talking about enterprise sales, and you tell me that you're the top rep, no, no, you can't be the top rep. It takes at least 12 months if we're really talking about, unless you're the only rep, if you're like rep one of one, of course you're the top person, there's nobody else. But like, these are the things that people, critical thinkers and critical thinking hiring managers think about of like, wait, if it's everybody else's problem, if it's that every business sucked, if it's that every executive leader and founder didn't know what they were doing and you have no lessons learned besides I just like startups and it's everybody else's problem, you directly are getting into the zone of how are you making decisions? What is your decision criteria? And now I'm starting to sniff out some BS here or too big of a risk for my business. Yeah, a little tangential with this conversation, but I'm going to wrap up here in just a couple of minutes. But one of the things that I've done in my career, and I really started doing this once I was in a hiring automation software company where I was a CEO, I had two metrics. One was called the recruiting cost ratio. And that was, I looked at all the investments we made into recruiting. And that didn't include just the recruiter cost or the job postings but also interview cost if I got six people interviewing or travel and divide that by the first year salary. But the other thing we started doing was creating a firing cost ratio. And that was especially important for sales because to your point, we looked at all the time frame and lost quota performance, things like two to four months to hire, four to six months to ramp, two to six months to full performance. And then if that person didn't work out, we'd have another three to four months to rehire and then they go through an entire ramp process again. We realized we were losing on average 24 months of quota productivity with every bad sales hire. So I could go to my CFO and say, yeah, we may invested 30% with this recruiter, but the retention rate is 75% 
where in the way we've been doing it, my hit rate is only 48% and look at the cost. So I would yeah. strongly encourage everyone, both on the talent acquisition side, but also on the hiring side, understand specifically what the cost of every bad hire is for your company. You know, you mentioned something that I didn't even mention as a, as a data point of what goes into the cost is the expenses, right? Like if you're traveling a bunch, if you've got an expense account, that money lost, right? Like, so you, I think you and I are saying the exact same thing. It's a big deal right? It's a big deal for everybody involved. It's not just the employer. It's also the person's career. And for those that really, truly, deeply care about being in sales, these are really important things to be thinking about. And so before you take a call from somebody like me, I think you want to analyze what's important to you. What does the right work look like for you? What does the right kind of company look like for you? What does the right stage of company look like for you? What doesn't look good for you? What kind of leadership do you crave? What kind of product do you enjoy? You know, when I tell, when people tell me I can sell iced and Eskimo and I'm open to anything, that's a turnoff. Let's not take the same kind of backseat approach that so many are taking, not everybody, but so many are taking to such important things. Those important things are scaling your company. You can't scale it if you don't have the right people in the right roles doing the right work. And if you don't have customers, you don't have a business. And then on the flip side, from the person that it's their career, this is your career. This is how you pay your bills. This is what you do day in and day out. And in sales, when it's more than a 40 hour work week by and large, and those 40 hours can look and feel different ways. It might not be eight to five, that's okay. But you know, in my mind, life goes by in a blink. And if it's not worth it, and you're just going for the shiny eye, objects. It becomes very, very empty very, very quickly. I totally agree, Amy. I, I have a saying and I tell my employees this. I also have told my three now adult children this. Your responsibility is to be the master of your own destiny and don't become a victim of your own reality. Yep. So thank you so much, Amy, for being on the Metrics and Measure Up podcast. Really appreciate it. Hopefully we can do this again someday. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ryan. This was a lovely conversation. I hope it's helpful for anybody listening. So really appreciate it.